Have you seen me dice bag? <laughs> the Grognard Files. Hello, my name is Dirk the Dice, and this is the Grognard Files podcast, where we talk bobbins about tabletop RPGs from back in the day and today. I'm coming live from my den here in the northwest of England. I've been going through one of my occasional clear-outs, sorting things into some semblance of order. It won't last. Chaos will find a way of creeping into the order. On my right is my great library of RPGs and my grognard files. On my left is the ridiculous homemade shrine to the actor, Caroline Monroe. I'll, uh, I'll just give it a tap. Ah, yes. The Eternal Champion is still appearing in Don't Open Until Christmas. That must be due to us having some unfinished business from the previous episode. Last time we had Gaz from the Smart Party podcast visiting the book club talking about his ever-expanding catalogue of adventures that he's producing for the community content platforms. This episode continues with a similar theme. The next book club guest is John Four, the creator of the five-room dungeon approach to adventure design. He joined us in the room of role-playing rambling to discuss the principles of this method and some of the theories behind stories and how they can help us build better games. John is really insightful, so I hope you learned something new from our discussion. I certainly did. Judge Blythe, our resident rules lawyer, and I went to the pub and reviewed our favourite scenarios and campaigns that we've played over the past 12 years. We analysed what it was about playing or GMing in that session and that brought things alive and made it stand out from some of the other games that we've played. Convention one-shots, online games, campaigns, face-to-face, all format styles and genres were considered. We then looked at each nomination and picked one word to describe what was good about it, with the idea that if all the words were put together, we would have the formula for the perfect game. We don't show our workings here, for reasons that we'll explain, but we'll review the results in the cold light of day. At the end, in a bit of closing time chatter, we set out our plans for the year on the grog. So... Let's do it. Ramblers, let's get rambling. Book Club! And uh, welcome to the Zoom of Roleplaying Rambling. And it's the Book Club. And we're joined this time by no less than John Four. Hello there, John. Hello, or no more than John. It depends on how you look at it. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) For the the listeners, where in the world are you uh, beaming to us from? I'm in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, just outside of Edmonton. Um, it's actually very warm this year. Um, sometimes around this time of year, I'd be able to brag that it's minus 10 or 20 or 30 centigrade. But uh, this year, it's above um, zero on most afternoons and only about minus three or four at night. Um, such a heavy frost, though, that I thought it might have snowed, but and we're still missing some snow. So a warmer year. Anyways, yeah, that's in the prairies. So it's uh, going to be cold probably at some point here. And, and what's gaming like in, in that region then? 
Well, I don't have a lot of um, like public uh, gaming and or uh, there's one convention here in town that uh, that I've been to. So I don't think I have a finger on, on the pulse of Alberta gaming. But in general, um, I would say it's strong and the interest is high. Uh, Canada uh, in general supports tabletop RPGs. Um, lots of people play it. And then when I talk to um, various people at uh, work, uh, like new people and and others, you know, people who don't know me and people who do, they're all like, I, I play Dungeons and Dragons. It's the easiest way to explain my hobby. Uh, and they know exactly what's going on and what I'm talking about. And then I'd say a third of them say, great, can you play a game at work with us? So I think it's quite popular in Canada. And if it's if it's not played, it's at least well known and considered in, as a good pastime. And what, what's your gaming made up of at the moment then? So what games have you got on the go? I've cut back. So busy. Two jobs and, and other things. But I am uh, started up a, a Woin RPG, W-O-I-N, um, created by Morris who um, and his team who runs uh, N-World. I just got the Dragon Bane uh, box set. And uh, that was a, a seasonal sale that just arrived. And uh, so I'm thinking of doing some one shots with that. What else? I was gearing up for a Pathfinder 2 RPG, but that fell through. So um, I think I'll just sh- say a short answer. One RPG and some uh, one shots to kind of play test some uh, systems on my GM uh, bucket list shelf. I've got a bookshelf over here of systems to try out. So from our point of view, uh, we've recently had a, a convention that we run for the Grognard Files and uh, Dragon Bane is very uh, popular. Yeah, I don't know the history. Swedish RPG from the 80s resurrected and and reprinted, but I think uh, Free League applied their own uh, system. I'm not, I can't recall what it is, but it is their own uh, in-house game system. And so I don't know how much the Dragon Bane RPG has changed uh, over the decades uh, compared to the current version. Um, But I'm finding it similar to Forbidden Lands. I was debating on whether in the newsletter when I talk about it, to call it a light RPG, a a rules light RPG or not, because the mechanics are not that uh, complex. You can compare them to Woin RPG, for example, or even D&D 5e. It's definitely um, simpler. But then I was looking at the book. I can't remember what the page count is. Let's say it's 120 pages. The Monopoly rules are on a little pamphlet in my box. They're, you know, three pages. Is a 120-page RPG a light RPG still? I'm not sure. But anyways, I'm glad it's popular. It's a good... Uh, it seems like uh, it'll be a good game to run. And it's it offers a variety of of modes. Like, it'll reward puzzles and role play, not just combat. And it actually downplays combat a little bit. So yeah, I look forward to it. Yeah, that was certainly my experience uh, of the game. That it did definitely do that. It did present different challenges other than just going into a room and uh, slaughtering the goblins. It, we had to yes. yeah. uh, deal with the goblins differently. Yeah, And then it has a boon bane system. So it's like advantage and disadvantage if um, anyone has played D&D 5e. But um, the boon means you roll two dice and you take the lowest. It's a roll low system, which is kind of a mind warp for me. I'm used to a 20 being the most exciting number on a dice you can see. Um, and then a bane or a bad result is if you roll a 20, a critical fumble in is, in essence. But there's some mechanics around that that are nice. For example, if I were another player wanting to help a friend, then I would be giving them a boon. So the other uh, player gets an extra d20 and they get to roll and choose the lowest. So that's nice. But the, the mechanic of saying I help you 
is just great. The player instantly picks up another 20. Like how you role play that situation to describe how you help is great. But then you just pick up another D20 and, and roll with it. So it, it's a very accessible way to manage the rules, I think. Whereas in War and RPG, we're looking at, oh, you got to change the dice pool in this way. And we're still kind of wrapping our heads around it. It's a great game. I like the, the depth and complexity. It'll be a long-term campaign for us. But um, it's elegant. Dragon Bane is elegant, I think. So this uh, podcast is all about adventure design. And we've been uh, looking at adventure design in different ways. And I came back into the hobby um, a few years ago now. Uh, and when I came to design my adventures, I found this site called the Five Room Dungeon. And it was a real revelation to me in terms of how to approach uh, adventure design. So thank you for that. So just... Tell us, John, for people who are not aware of the five-room dungeon format, what, how does it work and what's, what's the pitch for it? So uh, in around the early 2000s, I wanted a consistent way to develop adventures. It felt like I was starting from scratch in terms of a methodology. And I had the uh, TSR adventure design kit or that, that thin uh, module with a way of designing adventures. Um, but I was kind of unhappy with, with that format. So I thought um, at the time I was reading a lot of uh, Joseph Campbell, uh, Dr. Joseph Campbell, who um, I don't know how what his official job was, anthropologist? Or... Yes, I think so. Yeah, I think he's an anthropologist, yeah. isn't he? Yeah. And so he studied a lot of uh, indigenous cultures around the world and discovered that they had the same, uh, in, who had oral histories, they had the same format in their stories. Um, Vladimir Prop uh, came to the same conclusion in Russia, but he, had a, he ended up with a different model. So anyways... Joseph Campbell studied the uh, how storytelling worked in a variety of cultures over uh, Earth's history, came up with uh, the idea that there's several points that are common in these stories because they actually mirror our lives. So our lives start out as nothing, the normal world, regular, and then we get a challenge. Something uh, just comes out of the blue and, and, call, and there's a call to adventure. And then all of a sudden our lives are upside down and we kind of go through this process in real life which uh, his model maps so he created a model hero of a thousand faces i think is the book that he presented it in it's called the hero's journey and i can't remember if that was hollywood that called it hero's journey or if he called it hero's journey because i think he called it the monomyth which is earth basically has one root myth of which there's a million uh, variations all right long story short i like that but I realized that his, I don't remember how many steps, but let's say there's 12 or 13 steps in his model, the monomyth. I realized that they, a lot of them weren't suitable for games because we have players and game, we're playing a game, we don't have a passive audience. So for example, one of his steps is, so a call to action is, hey, do you want to go on this adventure? Or you better go on this adventure, something terrible will happen. Or you come on this adventure and something great might happen. So then he has a refusal to the call to action. So the, the hero is not quite ready for the challenge. So they'll step back. You cannot force the players to make a choice to refuse a call to action. So I realized that some of them weren't um, good for our sort of new and emerging medium of, of role-playing. So I just trimmed it down and then um, kept the essence of it. And then I it boiled it down to five steps from beginning to end. So... It maps or mirrors Joseph Campbell's monomyth theory, which was used in as a hero's journey for all the blockbuster movies in Hollywood in the 80s and 90s. They templated it. Um, 
and a fa- in a fantastic book by Chris Vogel, I think, where he explains the Hollywood script writing formula derived from Campbell's stuff. Anyways, I see Andrew nodding, so I, I got the name right. And so, yeah, the Five Room Dungeon is a distillation of that mythological story structure with all the um, non-interactive parts uh, removed to avoid railroading. The structure is basically room one is entrance and guardian. It says, okay, how do you get the players to the adventure? What's the first kind of encounter of the adventure? But it also explains, well, you know, presumably there's some treasure, exciting uh, rewards uh, coming up. Why hasn't anyone else gotten those rewards yet? Why hasn't anyone already looted the tomb or done the thing and earned the reward? So that's you. The answer is often in the entrance and the guardian. There's something at the beginning that repels most people. And that marks the beginning of the unknown world in uh, the monomyth theory. So as soon as the players, characters enter room one, they're now in the adventure. And now we should give them all kinds of interesting environments and terrain and situations, things that they will not find in the village. So it is kind of a break from reality. Room two is role-playing. And in the monomyth theory, there's some kind of guide, like the Yoda or uh, there is some kind of moment of wisdom and uh, insight for the the hero. Um, and this actually happens a, a couple of times in, in Campbell's model and, and in props. But for mine, I just said, okay, the, the next point is there needs to be a role-playing moment to variety of gameplay in case room one was either um, you know, a puzzle or a combat. Let's do some role-play. But room two can also be a guide. Welcome to the adventure. This is like I'm speaking in a meta way, but welcome to the adventure. Here's what you can expect. So it builds drama and tension because the players are role-playing with somebody who's giving them sort of an advanced view of what's coming up. Like, for example, if the um, the main boss was a dragon. Well, in room two, I would start to introduce a lot more of dragon lore and, and the um, potential danger of being of, of getting closer to a dragon and all those clues. So room room two is an opportunity to start uh, scaring the players, getting them nervous, getting them anxious, girding their loins. Room three is about a trick or a setback because a, a critical moment in Campbell's um, theory is that at some point the hero will reach the abyss, the lowest moment. Um, uh, Seth Godin, who is in the business world, calls it the dip in his book, The Dip. It is where you think of giving up. You look into uh, the abyss and you see nothing staring back at you, or perhaps you see yourself staring back at you. And so it's a terrible moment. Um, so translated into our games, it became like a trick or a setback, a complication. The adventure isn't going smoothly. It's not a cakewalk, but strategically, it's a softening up of the party. So if we can deplete some resources of the party before the big main battle, that helps uh, not only increase the drama, so it increases fear, uncertainty, and doubt, FUD, because the players don't know. They've just been given a setback, so they're not so confident and cocky. It also is designed, or, or ideally, it defeats the one-encounter adventure days so that the players aren't fresh and at 100% when they go to room four, which is the grand finale or the the climax. And that's usually the confrontation with the central conflict of your adventure. Most often, it depends on your game, but most often it's a monster or some foes. But it, it could also be, great, go to the comet, plant the expos- explosives and derail it from, I guess an asteroid, and derail it from crashing to the Earth, whatever your central conflict is. And um, and then five, room five is uh, your reward. So it's 
you know, in Campbell's, it's about life's lessons. Um, uh, you you get your uh, your wisdom from the gods. You get your insight. Um, but it's also in, in in RPG terms, it's that chest of loot, the magic items, um, the title of knighthood, the feast at the village, uh, celebrating them all as heroes, or whatever form it takes. But ideally, you also have a twist or a revelation. So this one's a little harder to explain, but you know how uh, you're watching a movie and you're saying, okay, I'm following along. And then all of a sudden, it's like, no, they're all ghosts. Wow. Okay. Everything I've just seen, I'm, it's been cast through an entirely different light. Like you, you experience the adventure again in a way, but now it's, it's reframed. Oh, wow. What an amazing twist or, or a revelation there. And the best case of room five is that the, the player characters learn something that recasts the entire adventure in a different light. And that's difficult to do. So more often I, I just aim for, okay, what's a hook to the next adventure and get them onto, to the next one. Maybe in the chest, they find another map that uh where x marks the spot and now they're on to the next call to call to adventure in the next room one but um that's it in a nutshell so room one is the entrance then we have a role-playing encounter and then a setback or complication the grand finale and the um and then your reward and there's a couple of miss around five room dungeons uh that i think limit um if if gms like the idea but they find it limiting i I just like to dispel here help clear up if uh, i i can and continue on um and continue this monologue the um i i think i i regret naming it five room dungeon i should have named it five room stories or five room adventures because uh while i i was in a dungeon crawling mood for that campaign i think we were playing yeah we're playing D &D 3.5 uh at that time um it's not a dungeon, pure dungeon uh, plot uh, uh, tool. It is for any kind of story because it has the killer or critical um, moments of a mythical story, which means it resembles our day-to-day -day lives. If you take those five points, we can map those to all kinds of incidents that have happened in our lives, for example. Anyways, uh, so don't consider it a dungeon model. It is a five-room adventure model. You also don't have to use exactly five rooms. Uh, so, for example, I might use that as a storytelling or a narrative tool in a single encounter. So the encounter begins room one, it ends room five, and then it's the progression, the development of an encounter uh, can contain the other three steps. And then finally, uh, you can have like 40 rooms in a dungeon if you want. They're more like story beats. If you've read uh, that book by Robin Laws uh, about Hamlet's uh, uh, health uh, hit points. So um, these are also a type of story beats um, who Sly Flourish. I don't know if you've had Mike on your podcast before, but as he and I were exploring some five room dungeon concepts in a video series that we did, um, I realized that uh, there's it is actually a dynamic story structure that you can layer on in an improvisational fashion. But back to my main point, you don't have to stick with five rooms and feel it's formulaic and your players will guess it or metagame it. It can be seven rooms or 20 rooms. My heuristic is if it's more than nine rooms, so once you get to 10 encounters in a dungeon, why not split it up into two five-room dungeons? Uh, my contention is it's got an entire story baked into it from start to end. So if you just take a rambling crawl of some kind that's 10 encounters long, but in ten, instead divide it into two uh, self-contained, uh, mythically structured stories, that's exciting for uh, storytelling and, and player characters and, and role play. 
Um, so feel free to play with the formula. Uh, there's lots of stuff out there about it. Yeah, we, we we certainly had a discussion about that this morning about how much of it is a, a literal schematic and how much of it is more, as you described it, um, story beats and drama. Yeah. And the the word drama came up quite quite a bit. The other thing to note as well is that. You don't necessarily need to do them in this order, do you? You, you can start at different points. Yeah, so I think there's three phases. So one, you can just run it, and then you understand uh, how to be a storyteller with rising tension and rising uh, action. The other way is that you can um, you can eliminate a couple of the rooms that are non-essential. So that's basically rooms two and three, technically room five, although I wouldn't want to deprive my players of their treasure. I might have a lot of dice thrown at my screen. Um, so room two, the role play, the guide, the orientation, the uh, leaving the normal world moment and stuff, uh, that we leave it out is not a critical component. And then the complication and setback is is nice for storytelling, but it, it's not essential. But I would call the beginning of a story and the end of a story essential. Otherwise, our brains are just like open loops. It will it will drive us crazy like a word that's on the tip of our tongue. It'll just gnaw on us. So if we don't want to do bad things to our players and keep them up at nights, we should close the loops and the stories. But then the third phase is when you you kind of go uh, postmodern and maybe you start with room five first, which I've done sometimes, or maybe you start with room four. You instantly encounter the big uh, bad evil person and and defeat them. But now the other rooms are. Uh, in a state without that presence. And what does that mean? You can play with those ideas. Perhaps now the players have a gauntlet of traps to make their way to the entrance, which is actually the exit for them. Maybe they teleported directly into room four or something. So you can play with the scenarios. And I just kind of break it down into those phases. One is, okay, you run it as is to learn it. Two, you play around with room two and three, and maybe five is optional. And then three is you just let your imagination go wild and and play with the formula and, and learn it. Uh, keeps your players on the on the toes on their toes uh, as you're experimenting with it as well. One of the discussions we had was that we're using uh, story gaming uh, techniques and sometimes imposing them on more traditional uh, rule sets. So in some cases, uh, room three, where there's the trick or setback, that can in a traditional setting that can end up being quite adversarial. So how do you suggest we uh, avoid that? Well, okay. So what do you mean by adversarial? Uh, do you mean that there's some kind of foe to kill? Do you mean like it's a combat encounter or something oh, else? I think it's more adversarial from the point of view of the GM imposing a trick or setback mm. on the players uh, that, yeah. um, you know, it, in traditional games, that could end up, if, if a vital NPC is killed, for example, or an NPC turns out to be a traitor, it, and the players then it instills a reluctance to trust anybody or anything. Um, because of the nature of the game that you're playing. Um, so we, we're trying to work out how those kind of, these new elements of story uh, work with the, the older uh, adversarial uh, GM style. Yeah, interesting question. Yeah, cool. So so there's a couple of things to unpack there. The first is trust. So can, I, if you are not, a, so I call them story rules. So certain story, uh, there are roles within stories that once you see uh, is what's going on, you can spot them right away. So, for example, there's your foil or Loki, the trickster, who sometimes might be an ally in a story and sometimes might be a hindrance or an enemy in the same story. 
uh, with the same heroes. And so there's also a villain and there's others. So there's a number of story roles. Um, and if the players start to um, not trust the GM because those story roles are, okay, I know that's the victim role. So I know not to get close to that NPC because they, you know, John's got a mark on them. They're going down. I've spotted this, uh, this uh, pattern. Um, I think game, because this is a game design uh, podcast, then I would apply game design uh, to that problem and have done. So in, in D&D, there's alignment. Most people, I, I think nowadays, many people don't play with alignment or use it. Um, but if you if you use alignment as a way to detect whether an NPC is going to backstab you or not, then you can get trust that way. So if um, you cast detect evil and the NPC is not evil, then the players, through that, that's a game design layer thing, having that offering in the game, that ability. Now the players can use the tools to determine whether they should trust NPCs or not. And whether NPCs will die or not, my house rule for myself is to kill an NPC every session. I try to introduce two NPCs and kill some NPC, uh, inspired by George R. R. Martin, perhaps. But um, so NPC death is just the nature of being in a dangerous world that needs adventurers to help the the regular common people. Um, <clears throat> thus, the definition of hero. So I would I would argue that we could apply game design to solve those uh, problems and not flinch or hesitate to apply uh, storytelling to it. You're right, because it's not just go to town, recoup, then go back to the dungeon, get more loot, go to town, level up, and re regroup, and then go back to the dungeon. Now there's plots, fishing side quests, and, and all manner of storytelling in, in games these days. I, it appeals to me... Um this John because I like a good structure and it, it is a structure that it gives you constraints to work against isn't it and yeah. uh, to challenge and as I say mix them up a little bit um, and it, it's, it's good that you mentioned uh, Robin D. Laws I've been recently reading his recent uh, pamphlet The Adventure Crucible and in there he has a set of uh, different uh, structures that can be applied to uh, role-playing games. I'm writing that down. I did not know he had that book out. It's a fundraiser for the Kraken Convention. It's available on drive-thru. I would like to editorialize and say that I am concerned that the story element of games is taking over. Um, I have a mental model there of, of RPGs, and there's three kind of points. I call it the GM triangle. Um, it's system and story and setting. So my contention is that uh, the role-playing games are primarily three primordial ingredients. You've got your game system or your rules. So there's some constraints beginning to be applied for your design mind because a blank sheet of paper is is anathema to creativity sometimes. So, uh, so that's our game system. And our game system tells us about a lot of what type of gameplay is possible and how to engineer those moments. Then story is the pure story layer. So this is the meaning of things. What is the value behind things uh what is what is their um connotation in uh the in the game system and the setting so we have story the third point of the triangle is the setting which is your world and the world i think is designed in to create puzzles so your your system is sort of the mechanics and the crunch the story is storytelling and and sorry the system might be considered conf, uh, combat your story is story and your setting is puzzles. And those happen to be the three types of encounters there are in my methodology as well. So there's puzzle encounters, 
So you're using a skill, the players are noodling on something, you're solving a dilemma, you're trying to get broker piece, you're trying to figure out how to get your hand out of the, the cookie jar with uh, your hand still full of cookies, whatever the puzzle is. And then story is storytelling. So you're just role playing through the encounter. And then um, there's uh, combat, which is often the basis of uh, three quarters of a, of a book, uh, a role playing uh, guide. So um, when you look at those three uh, triangles and we're playing an interactive game. So we, we have terms like railroading, which uh, is a signal that we're making decisions for the players and we're removing player uh, agency from the players. It would be like playing the game Monopoly. And I just grab the dice from a player and say, I'm rolling for you from now on. And I'm going to decide whether, uh, you know, what your your choices are. Um, and so my concern is uh, with the game GMs not being uh, with the emphasis of game being de-emphasized in a more and more storytelling um, s- approach to the game. Are we doing ourselves a disservice by reducing agency and or not playing such an interactive um in, in kind of engaging game I, I i'm not doing a very good job of explaining it but uh every encounter let me digress for a second every encounter if it's a good one needs a conflict of some kind so back to your earlier question i can have a conflict that's role playing or something that's a skill challenge or or something that's combat three examples um so if a if an encounter doesn't have a conflict, I would consider it a potentially boring encounter. And we're short on time, so I try to just have every encounter have a conflict and keep the plot moving. But I know there's uh, um, GMs have pushed back at me saying, well, sometimes we just want to sit around in the bar and meet random strangers and talk to people. And there's no conflict. We are just being in the shoes of our player characters and being somebody else for a change. And I understand there's value in that. Is that dramatic or exciting? No. Um, it's more like fishing. And you can take five hours, relax. There's no pressure, no drama, no excitement there until the fish strikes. But that's the moment of conflict. So a, an encounter without conflict is less interesting. So to pull all this uh, together, if you put too much emphasis on the story portion of my model of story and game and uh, and setting, if you put too much, then I think you're not getting enough of what the other two uh, things contribute uh, and especially in the mechanic side. And you're kind of not, you stop playing a game and you're more just you know, sitting around and telling you're being somebody else for a while. And you're not actually getting closer to resolution or doing um, much in the way of conflict. So it could be boring. One final thing. If you're so focused on story, you start having to stress about the future and therefore you start trying to control the future and that's like me trying to control the future moves of players in Monopoly. And that's just against, I think, the grain of how I see uh, the game. I don't want, uh, I want to give players the maximum choice. They're not an audience. They're players in a game. The comment I made uh, this morning is that each of these uh, beats in the uh, five-room dungeon presents something to the players to respond to. That's what the that's what it's leaning into isn't it it's, it's leaning towards that thing that, that you need to present something for them to respond to and th- and that's how it's presented isn't it certainly yeah to provoke action or um at least a choice yes yeah a game without choice is is not a game it's a, an essential criteria of the definition of a game so you're right and uh, this isn't in isolation is it i'm i i participate in your 
newsletters and other activity so you provide loads of uh, content for people for people who are not aware of it so how can they uh, connect to that and uh, what are the kind of things that that you're working on at the moment and providing sure yeah thank you uh, so my site is roleplayingtips.com so it's roleplayingtips.com and so i started in 1999 um i was feeling lonely as a gm i had two goals i wanted to become a better gm basically what is the maximum potential i have as a as a game master it's a a deep craft if you want to go down that route and so I said, yeah, I just want, this is an awesome hobby. Uh, I'll probably never tire of it. So how can I master my craft, which is still a quest I have today. Uh, and then the other one was, well, um, I'm I'm kind of alone here. A game master by definition is alone at the table. The other players, they're on the other side of the screen uh, and they collaborate with each other. They're the team. The GM doesn't necessarily have to be an adversarial GM, but they still have secrets and they still have things that they cannot share with the players and and the characters uh, including what might be coming up in the story. And so uh, I, my contention was it's a lonely craft. We can't talk shop uh, with players who haven't GM before, and uh, we can't tell them all of our uh, evil plans, our hand-rubbing, cackling plans. So um, I thought, well, the internet exists. Why don't I set up a tip exchange? I'll send one out, see if I can get any back, echo them back around, and then sort of build it up from there. And so that's how it started. Um, to help GMs feel a little bit less lonely. Oh, and at the time, I was on um, a fair number of, of news groups uh, back in the day. That was a major portion of the internet. Uh, but those had devolved. Like, even the creators uh, were on those news groups from TSR and whatnot. But um, it, there were flame wars galore as, I think, the the tabletop RPG industry group, industry people were normalizing. Like, you know, getting uh, agreement on definitions and procedures and what's good and what's bad but i started the newsletter back then still running it today you can find it at the site and i have uh, written a book the ultimate guide to five room dungeons which goes through what i just rambled about and also offers like sort of templated versions for mysteries and other types of adventures and has tips and then i had a, a contest a, a couple of decades ago with game masters when i introduced the model i said design for me some five room dungeons and i'll uh, edit them, polish them up a little, not polish the design, but just do a little bit of editing and then format them, lay them out and then put them back. So there's 88 community built five room dungeons, uh, in this book and it's free. So you just go to roleplayingtips.com on the homepage. There's a little link. Uh, if you sign up for the newsletter, give me your email address is the, is the privacy policy exchange there. If you give an email address, I will send you the book for free and the newsletter and, and no spam. But uh, also on the site are, uh, my ramblings since that uh, fateful moment in November 1999 when I decided to do this uh, strange thing. And so there's in the blog and the archives, there's all kinds of more freebies and and tips and and stuff. Um, it's a bit chaotic there, not too well organized, um, but maybe consider it an exploration. Uh, go put your explorer's hat on and see what you can discover. Thank you very much. It's been great mining your great gamer brain uh, to provide us with some tips and techniques for the podcast so thank you very much yeah thanks for the invite it's been fun a games master prepares welcome to the zoom of role-playing rambling i've got blithe with me hello there blithe hello dirk i never thought i'd see the day that i saw you in a hoodie yeah well all the family got them for christmas apart from me i was quite jealous so i i ended up getting one Mine's like a cheap one off the market. They've, they've all got proper ones, proper expensive ones. I, I ended up with a cheap one off the market, you know, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> cheap replica. 
Slight, slightly spelled <laughs> wrong. Big call. Who did who did yeah. with a W? Is it? Yeah. <laughs> Double, that, yeah. That'd be a woody, that, wouldn't it? it? Yeah. It, with, with those on, I mean, it's a time of year to wear them. And when you're playing games and everybody's in the little windows on Zoom and they're wearing them, it's like a cult gathering, isn't it? Like a sacrifice is going it, to be. It is. It is like, good for Colic Athela, aren't they? You know, you've got your, your hoods, hood, hoodie, got this cultist hoodie on. Because we've got John Four on this time talking about five room dungeons and adventure design. Oh, yeah. And. I had the idea, didn't I, when we went, last had our J- Jolly Boys out in the JBR, why don't we do a reflection of 12 years of returning to gaming, picking out the best games that we've played over that period, understanding why those sessions work well, and trying to get the essence of what makes a great role-playing game session. That sounds brilliant, doesn't it? That sounds brilliant. Yeah, that sounds like a great idea. We had a great conversation about it when we were in the pub about it. Yeah. I can't remember it, though. Can you? It, <laughs> we had a drink. <laughs> <laughs> well, we had a, I, I can remember it. I took notes. It was that good. Oh, okay. All right. We minuted. Drunken minuted meeting. Okay. Yeah. I, I can just about read my handwriting. But I'm not proposing that we replicate it here. I think. Right. It's going to go down as one of the great unrecorded sequences of the Grognard files. The lost tapes that, that, aren't, that aren't taped, but anyway, yeah. Well, it, it could be like one of those, you know, like um, Hitchcock's Kaleidoscope or Jodorowsky's version of Dune. Great pieces of art that were never made, but they're spoken of. Okay, <laughs> you'd be up there with those, could it? I would talk, I would chat in the pub. <laughs> well, okay, yeah, fine, fine by me. Others may disagree, but you know, I'll go along with that idea. The it's only with with Hitchcock's kaleidoscope, etc., etc. Yeah. The only remaining things are the notes I made because what we did at the end of it, we tried to summarize in one word what made that particular session special. And the thing is, is that if we were relating it now, we'd have to. Because we knew what we were talking about because we were attending most of those sessions. We'd have to describe in detail what actually happened. And I think that's boring to listen to. There's nothing worse than listening to people relate stuff that's happened in games that you weren't part of. Oh, listening into games. I mean, on that very JBO, I think we went into Fanboy, didn't we? We looked at the shelves, looked at the stuff to buy, and there were some people playing a game of D&D. And you said to me, it sounds rubbish. It sounds rubbish when you're outside of it. And yet, it wasn't rubbish. If we were playing it, we'd have been as engaged as they are. But when you're outside listening in, it sounds rubbish. It sounds stupid, doesn't it? You're in the realm of Iron Ward, and it is much changed from the previous time you visited. The aesthetic is slightly different. And it, that's what he was saying, wasn't it? And it sounded daft. It was. Then you said that sounds, that sounds daft, but we both agreed that if we were sat around the table playing it, it wouldn't sound daft. No, it's we would a have kind been of weird daft. thing with a role playing game that when you're in it, it's not daft. Anything but daft, it's really engaging. But when you're not in it and you're just listening in, it sounds daft. So you look because if you were in, you're going, Oh, right, okay, why is the aesthetic different? I wonder, mm, yeah, what's going well, on just... here? Why has it changed? Yeah, why has it changed? 
But that, but that's I suppose that's a similar thing to what you're saying, isn't it? That you know, listening to other people's gaming experiences it can be a bit dull, can't it? It can be a bit dull, and it? it's when people start. It's a bit like I think I've described it before. It's when people are describing the dreams that they've had. Oh, you'll not believe the yeah. dream I had last night. And it's the same thing with a gaming session. I can feel my eyes glazing over when they start. I'm thinking. <laughs> Yeah, I know. I had a strange dream last night. You think, oh, I hope it's a short one. You're going to tell me now, aren't you? All about it. And, was it Oscar Wilde who said that? Was it Oscar Wilde who said something like, there's nothing yeah. more, more boring than other person's, people's dreams, or something like that, I think? And I'd say that there is nothing else more boring than listening to other people's stories about what's happening in the game. Because you weren't there, were you? You weren't part of it. Yeah, the whole, you, were, you weren't there. The whole pleasure of this is being part of it, isn't it? It's not relating. It's not uh, yeah. hearing it. It's a, it. it's a very, it's a very kind of in the moment thing, isn't it? Gaming. That's that's what is interesting about it. That it is, it is of the moment, isn't it? And in that few hours where you're playing, that is what really matters. You know, that's that's the beauty of it, really. Yeah, it's got a transient thing in some way. So, do you think we've justified? The fact that we can't be asked redoing something that we did in the past. Abs- absolutely. Absolutely. Well, let's, let's focus on the gully. Unders- where people fully understand our apparent laziness isn't laziness at all. <laughs> let's focus on, on the element then that we retained from that secret session, that unrecorded session. And as I say, we put together words that summarised particular games that we've played and really if you put all these together these words together i would say yeah. then you have the ultimate role-playing session are you ready for the words okay yeah I'll and you can you. you can input what you what you make of each of them so the first one was engagement do you think that's a prerequisite to every game oh absolutely yeah of course it is there's nothing every worse game. than yeah, yeah, every game really, because you you've got people who are engaged in it. I mean, it's the first it's the first kind of hurdle, isn't it? If you sit down and someone's not engaged in the game, not really paying attention to it, that that's a, you're on shaky ground right from the word go, aren't you? Yeah. Or if you lose someone's attention, you know that kind of thing. And you, you do you sometimes that thing, isn't it, when you're playing a game. Uh, and you look around the table and you think, ooh, are they, have they, they've not done anything for a bit. I wonder if they kind of zoned out or I've not, I've not kind of, as a games master, I've not given them enough to do. Um, you immediately start to worry about that because you know that the key to any good game is being engaged in it and being involved in it, isn't it? More, yeah. more than anything, because, I mean, we've, we've talked about before, haven't we, where you can talk about systems and scenarios and settings and all, all those things, but ultimately, if you're not, engaged in it it's it's a bit of an on-starter isn't it you, you, you need that for everyone you can but i think it's high demand isn't it on uh, i mean when we go on holiday with um, my family we have this theory that it's impossible for everybody to be happy at the same time the four, uh, the four of us it's impossible <laughs> there's always going to be one person yeah. who is unhappy at a particular time is it not the same thing with gaming? When you're playing a lot of games and you've got an average, there are going to be times when people are zoning out for whatever reason or they're not quite in it or it doesn't think. So yeah. it, 
it's a prerequisite to a great game, but it does it is it necessarily necessary all the time? Well, what I would say, I think, yeah, I, I know what you're saying, but I suppose it depends on <laughs> depends on what you mean by engagement, doesn't it? In as much as when I say engagement, I don't I don't mean a hundred percent focused. I know what kind of underwear my character would wear. I've done all this detailed stuff or all. I don't mean it like quite like that. But what I mean is engagement as in you are interested in what's going on around the table, that, that level. Because you do get people sometimes who are not in, particularly interested and it's very apparent. So that's what I mean. But I suppose right. you could, could interpret it in a number of ways, couldn't you, I suppose, in, in the level of engagement. Engagement survives sobriety, are we saying? Yeah. Yeah. Next one is surprise. Now, this is one that you pulled out that there needs to be something in there that a great game session or something that comes out of the blue or Mm. something unexpected. Yeah. I would, yeah, I would say a bit bit like you did about engagement. I don't think it's absolutely necessary in the game to have surprises. But they, they do. For me, as a player particularly, they, they do kind of um, enhance a game when you get into the, you don't quite know what's going to happen. I mean, I suppose it, role-playing games generally are constructed of surprises, aren't they? You could argue. Right, going back to basics, right back to the old original dungeon crawl kind of games, there's a surprise because you don't know what's behind the door. It's as simple yeah. as that, isn't it? So surprises are, are part of any game, I suppose. But what I suppose what I meant when I pulled that out of the hat was surprising. I I like I like a really good twist. I like something. So you could say you come to a door. You're in a dungeon. You come to a door, and you can hear noises behind it. You think, oh, there's going to be a monster behind the door. I wonder what it's going to be. That that's a surprise, I suppose. But, but it's not really surprising because you kind of half expect. I suppose surprises that I like in a game are things that you just do not see coming. You just do not see them coming. You know? Right. And, you, you know, halfway through the game, there's a t- sudden turn where you go, uh-oh, we didn't see that. Like a magic trick almost. So I get, I get that. So it, it surprises an element of exploration. So when you're discovering something, something might yeah. emerge that you might not ex- expect. But I think, in this context, what you're saying is a really good game also has an element where there's a surprising twist or turn. And that's one of the elements yeah. that John identifies as part of the uh, five-room dungeon structure as well, that there's some kind of twist or um, you yeah. flip around and that uh, yeah. puts the players in a, a different position. So interesting that that one I came. suppose. I suppose a twist, maybe a twist is a better word than surprise because, as I say, all games are founded on surprises. They're all founded on the unknown, aren't they, from from the basic idea that as players you, you're given an, a, a task, a mission, and a mystery or whatever, and you're going to find things out that you don't know at the start. But I suppose it's more, yeah, a twist is a better way of putting it, I suppose. I, I, I agree with you, a, and I, I, maybe we change that then. Surprise, stroke, mm. and twist. Yeah, twist is a better way of putting it, I think. I think, I think they do have diminishing returns, though. I'm currently watching back-to-back Inside Number 9, which is the 
uh, Reese Smith and Steve Pemberton series, which is built up of individual stories that have an element of a twist in them. And I do think I have to, on your recommendation, I've rationed myself to watch them yeah, not as regularly because you do get a bit fatigued by surprise. Does that follow in a game as well? Yeah, maybe it does. Maybe it does. If, you, if you're always thinking as a player that every session there's going to be some unexpected twist, um, it could become, I suppose it starts to feel a bit contrived. Yeah, there is that. Yeah. 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 All right then. Maybe maybe it, maybe it's not a component of a great. I don't know. Mm. Oh. I mean, does a component of a great game have to be? So maybe it's not then. I don't know. Maybe it's a great thing to put in a game, a twist, but maybe it's not necessarily a component of a great game. So on a sober reflection, it's potentially part of a great game, but not always. Important but not essential. There we go. Maybe, yeah. We're doing because, as you rain. say, it could get a bit could get a bit wearing. I suppose eventually, ludicrous twists all the time, and also these ludicrous twists. Sometimes you suspect the GM is making it up as they go along. We used to do that when we were kids. You used to do it all the time. I blame you. You conditioned me. You when we played RuneQuest, you, you would come up with some outlandish twist. The barman was a still do it. I still do and it. it. And it was all no, and it was it was like, oh, that's great. But then eventually, you think he's just making this up. <laughs> I know we're making it all up, but you know, it's all made up. It's it all up made up. The, making it up on the spot, kind of thing, because it's all got a bit boring. So let's let the tavern owner be a demon. There we go. I didn't expect that, but yeah. I'd still advocate that. Anyway, let's yeah. uh, let's look at the next one. Okay, the next one is Heroic. Who, who's that one? Is that me, me or you? That was you as well, yeah. That was you. Uh, I think this came from a sense that you could do things and that the truly great sessions are where you feel like you've your character's made an impact and you described it as a heroic because I think we were particularly talking about superheroes in that situation and about how... You know, your intervention makes a difference to what's happening. Yeah, and I suppose you don't have to be heroic. Makes it sound like um, it has to be some form of heroic fantasy or heroic sci-fi or heroic superheroes. But I suppose I don't quite mean that. What I mean is, even if you are ordinary people, so even if you are very ordinary people in a say a game of Call of Cthulhu where you are ordinary people you can still make an impact and into the game in some way. Yeah. Maybe again heroic's the wrong word. Maybe impact player impact is a is a precondition. So this, is why, this is why we're no good at this, isn't it? This is why we're no good at this. Like Speak for yourself. No. <laughs> but when when it comes to we for example, we couldn't have a blog where we were just Telling people, oh, these this is our advice. This is how you build up the great game. Because, oh yeah, how you do it? Because we question our own advice, wouldn't we? We'd say this is how you do it, and then go, oh, maybe it isn't. I don't know. Yeah, not always. Yeah. Sometimes. Anyway, yeah, next week I've changed my mind. So heroic might be on there, but it might not be in the true sense of being 
a defined hero. Is that what we're saying? Yeah, I suppose. I suppose it's more about kind of impact of, into a game as a player. You, you need to, as a games master, you need to let the players have impact. You know, there's nothing, there's nothing worse than those games where the game, and we've all played in a few, where the games master does a lot of talking, a lot of talking, and you realise that they've got their own idea about how this adventure should go, and everything you do isn't really going to impact on the way the games master thinks that game's going to play out. So that is a kind of disastrous game from my perspective because what you want as a player, um, and also increasingly over the years, what I want as a games master is to present players with something and say, there you go, I don't know how you're going to solve this. And I don't. And what I want is, going back to surprise, I want you as players to surprise me. Yeah. But that all revolves around player impact, doesn't it? It allows, it's about players having uh, an impact on on that world rather is than it? just being passengers on, on some games master's flight of fancy. See what I mean? Yeah. I think there's that, but there's also that sense that your characters have to be capable as well. I think that's what that draws out. That if your uh, character is um, totally uh, a total bozo, but mm. it, that, that's the thing, though, isn't it? Because when you look at a game of Call of Cthulhu, you don't necessarily have to be heroic. But I guess what you're saying is that you need to I don't be able to make a, an impact. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I don't think heroic, and I think it can be bozo. So look at look at Dungeon Crawl Classics, those funnels that we've played. You, you're playing the most useless characters, aren't you? But the game still allows you to have an impact, or maybe survive, or do something sort of inventive to survive. So you can play, it, it's the difference between playing, you can still play a useless character who can have an impact on the game because the games master or the system allows that to happen in the same way that you could have a lot of heroic, brilliant characters. But if the games master's decided that he's just going to lead you through his little story and not let you do anything, well, you, you're, as, you're as useless as a, a useless character, aren't you? You see what I mean? I think that's mm. the thing. It's not about necessarily being look look at my character Ulm in Stormbringer. He's a great character, but he's essentially a bit useless, a bit rubbish. He's a rubbish character, but he's survived and he's managed to do things. Let's go for the next one then. <laughs> how many more? How many more did we write? How many more words? We, uh, there's a few more. All right. Next one is um, structure. Now, what in what sense of structure? The session has to have a, a structure, or the game has to have a structure. The adventure has to have some kind of structure to it because I think, again, I've, I've played in games where it's all been a bit flabby and you don't quite know what you're doing or where you're going and that kind of thing. Structure, you be a bit careful, I suppose, because if it's too structured, a bit like a straitjacket, but it, you need something where... I think it's one of your one of, it's one of your great complaints this you complain about when you read pre-written scenarios or you play stuff or even when you run stuff and you, you rewrite it one of your great complaints is always I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing yeah one of your complaints is when you've had a bad game at a convention or something you'll, you'll say to yourself it's alright but I, I didn't know what I, what I was supposed to be doing or you'll you'll say I bought this adventure and it's alright but I'm not sure the players would know what they were doing if I'd run it like that. Yeah. You know, that kind of thing. That's one of your great complaints. And I suppose structure is, is, is about that. It's about that sense of what are we doing? 
what do we have to do? What are we doing? Where are we going? That kind of thing. And if you don't have that to some degree in a game, it's, it's not impossible, but sandboxes, isn't it? You, go, oh, you can go anywhere, do anything. Well, that's all right. But you need to, at the same time, have a sense of what you're actually doing yeah. and where you're going with it. That, that's what I think the structure thing is. Yeah. And that, and that kind of sense that we, we hear the dichotomy between a sandbox and a railroad. But mm. th- th- those are the extremes, aren't they, way of describing it. But there's a sense of structure in all the games that we play, all sessions that we play. And I think you're right. It is one thing that and I think this is one that I chose, actually. And it's good if, I think it's good if built into the game. That's the thing I've learned over the last few years, that if it's actually built within the rules of the game and how the uh, game is set up that there is a sense of structure there is a sense of sequencing the sense of that it's being thought about how adventures will occur and then in between adventures these these are the structure that you follow i i do think that games that have that even though i might not use it all the time the idea yeah. that it's there is good because even even if it's there and I don't follow it, I can kick against it or subvert it or uh, turn it on its head or that kind of thing. But the, I, I do think that they have to have a structure. Yeah, I agree. Next one is energy. Energy. Yeah, this can't is bit, be, I definitely I definitely can't put that one in. Not me. It's a bit like engagement. This one, isn't it? It's it's debatable whether every session that you have needs to be at pace or at, yeah. at have its own sense of momentum but i think the truly games that i've experienced as a player and as a gm are ones where it feels like the moment it's set off that actually it's a a ride is the wrong word because we fall into the railroad territory again don't we but that sense <laughs> yeah. that everybody's together and there is a sense of joy and laughter and energy about it and people wanting to almost physical involvement in in, in the game. I had a game of uh, Flashing Blades. Don't let your eyes glaze over. But being there and people were fencing at the table, that that to me is a kind of energy that a role-playing game can generate. Although, again, it depends. You can definitely put things into two camps, can't you, in that if you're running a weekly or bi-weekly campaign or mini-campaign, you get those sessions where it's a bit of a less energetic one and then it picks up. Yeah. But I think if you're doing a one-shot or a con game, then you definitely want energy in it. You can't afford to it for it to be too low key can you because yeah it's it's a one-off isn't it so you really want yeah. to get people kind of energized into it yeah maybe energy is another word for pace isn't it yeah yeah which i think we both agree on is that again is one of our pet hates with with games that are slow too slow we both like running pacey kind of games don't we where you get people involved in the action quickly and move things along to, to the one. point where I, I always I always feel bad when at the con game where 
you have to do the old 20 minutes of, okay, these are characters. I'll just talk you through a few of the rules for those who've not played it. Blah. And I'd probably talk for 10 or 15 minutes, but I still can't hate myself for it. And I always yeah. apologize because I've been talking. Even that feels like I want to get to the meat of the scenario. But I think I called it energy because I do think there's like a physical element to it. Let's uh, do the next one. The next one is atmosphere. I'd say this is a controversial one. Great sessions do have atmosphere, but that's hard to generate. Yeah, it can be. It's one of the trickiest, trickiest things. Yeah, I suppose it's kind of a vague concept at times, isn't it? It's hard to. Some of the other things we've talked about, you can do, you can do things, can't you, to ensure that those things happen. So if you want it to be pacey and you're running a game, you, you as a games host can, I can make it pacey, can't you, by making the scenes move on quickly and that kind of thing. But atmosphere can be can be a tricky one, really. We all want to create it, don't we? I think atmosphere is more to do with making sure that your game has a sense of place. And I think if you establish that and you frame it and you put a bit of attention to that as a player and as a GM, just thinking about the location that your players, your characters are in, and mm. how they interact with it. That's where it generate, that's generates atmosphere. It is something, like you say, nebulous, isn't it? It's something that you can't put your mm. finger on. And that's part of, I think all of these things are hard to codify. And that's why I think sometimes it's a sense of, you know, it's a bit like pornography. You know it when you see it. Yeah. Yeah. You go to define it. Yeah. They are amorphous things that. People want to pin down, but you can't quite you can't quite pin them down. Yeah, and I suppose that's part of the magic, isn't it? That a game can surprise you with having atmosphere and things that you perhaps don't think it will have, but it but it does. So a bit of that to it. Next one, simple. I feel so like I'm in some kind of work work meeting now, and you're reading these off a flip chart or something like that. Well, you're not it, reading them off a flip chart. In essence, we, that is what we're doing, isn't it? We're trying to reconstruct something that happened a few weeks ago when we were in a different state, in a very formal environment now. <laughs> <laughs> and we'd had about four or five pints. <laughs> yeah. mm. I think this comes out of our perennial discussion about law and the you've got to be able to grasp it within what you're supposed to do and who you are and what the rules are and the mechanics, within yeah. a few minutes, you might want to elaborate that later if you're in part of a campaign. Mm -hmm. You can have a deeper relationship with the game. You might want to have more system mastery. But I think initially you need to be able to grasp it quite quickly. If it's overly yeah. complicated, yeah. it's off-putting, isn't it? I think, though, yeah, I, I, would, I would agree with you. I would agree with you. On, on all that, but I suppose the interesting thing is how, for some people, uh, they, they don't particularly want that, do they? Going back to like lower, you know, things about lower. There are people who like all that kind of complexity and intricacy about things, aren't there? And there are people not to do with lower. There's people who like the complexity of combat taking. Yeah, yeah, out. yeah. All the different positionings yeah. and flanking rules yeah. and length of weapons. I would, I, I would, yeah. It's an interesting one, isn't it? This because I would, I would say everything we've talked about so far would be hard to disagree with. 
in that people would probably go along with, do you want your games to be atmospheric? Well, who would say no? Who would say no? Who would go, oh, no, I don't want I know I actively try and uh, avoid atmosphere when I'm running a game. Who would say that? Some, so the things, you know, that structure, isn't it? Everyone, everyone, even if the structure's a bit half-cocked, everyone thinks they've got a structure. So a lot of the things we talked about are things that possibly everyone would agree with and go, oh, yeah, yeah, I, I think those things are important. Yeah, well, yeah, I want my players engaged. Of course I do. But but simple is, hmm, yeah, I don't know. That's a, that feels like the most personal of the words, isn't it, for me and you? Because it's that, what you, the way you've described it, Danny, what me and you want. We, that's what we want from a game. We like straightforward mechanics. We like straightforward sort of settings. We like to get on with the action. But not everyone does. No. Like you say, some people do like, do like complicated combat systems or which, because it gives them lots of choices about tactic. So that, yeah, simple is a weird, it's a weird one, isn't it? That, because I don't think everyone would necessarily go along with it. Because some people might say that, and, and we've, we've said this to a point, haven't we? Because we've played some very, very simple stripped-down, old-school kind of games that are stripped-down. I think Black Hack was one of them. And your criticism of some of those games was, and I tend, ultimately, I think I probably agree with you, is that you want a bit more from the system. Although we want it simple, maybe do not too simple. You know? Wow. So we have our first one where we can... in the cold light of day we think mm, it's not a prerequisite to every great session yeah that seems a bit dodgy simple the, ne- the next one we've kind of covered previously and this is one that i always have a strong sense of and that's the idea of purpose that is a purpose to your character uh, being in the world that is a purpose to the session that Something's going to change by the end of it, and there's a reason why these particular characters are making that change, doesn't it? That that yeah. comes back to the stru- what the character doing in this game. I don't quite know what's supposed to be doing. Some kind of focus, structure, or purpose to what's what's actually going on around the table and what we're trying to achieve and what my character's trying to achieve. Yeah, and why are we together? And why we why we determine this as a course of events? So maybe we um, conflate those two. This is like a a work session this we're doing stars and it wishes is, isn't it? Yeah. so how did it go for you nothing okay. dance. what worked for you what didn't work for you because yeah. it's a dance that's not no one said that so purposeful yeah. structure might be something where we conflate it let's yeah. uh, do the last one and the last one I think is a bit contentious but I think this is something that is very satisfactory in a game and that's the idea of a story arc, an overriding trajectory that this uh, is contributing to. And, you know, in one shot, that might be arguable, but even so, maybe in your own little world of a games master, it does fit into some grander narrative that you've got stored up. So, for example, (laughs) uh, you know, the idea of the unit campaign where, you know, I've run a a couple of one shots with different people about John Lennon's last weekend, different scenarios, but all with that as like mm. an underlying theme. Unknowing the different players are contributing to an arc that they might not oh. be participating in, but it feels like. And if, you, if you're in a long campaign, um, and I think we've been in a few like storm things 
King's Thunder and all those things. Actually, the little elements that you're doing from week to week are contributing to a whole that's going to be realised at the end. Is that necessary yeah, or that, is that yeah. contentious? I don't know if it's necessary, but it's nice. I think it's nice, but not necessary. So nice, but not necessary. I, yeah, nice, but not necessary. Because I've, I've had great games and great sessions that have been one-shots that have... They've had a they've had a story arc within the within the session, but they haven't really had a bigger story arc outside. There's been no sense of a bigger story arc, and they've been perfectly good and enjoyable game. So I don't know if it's essential to a great game, but it certainly enhances it when you've got that. It, it can enhance a series of games if you feel there's a story arc. We were talking uh, in the book club about uh, Dying Earth, uh, Jack Vance's Dying mm. Earth. And one of the observations is because it's a, a picaresque story, a series of encounters that Kujo, the protagonist of the story, encounters, it was serialised. So each chapter is like an individual encounter and they don't really relate to each other. So he moves from one adventure to the next and there's no sense that actually what he did before has any bearing on what's happening yeah, now. Yeah. And that is a, a structure that we did as kids, isn't it? We didn't necessarily, mm. we just grouped together scenarios, individual scenarios as part of a campaign. And the only continuity mm. was probably the characters, but the characters didn't really change other than certain progression. Mechanically got better skills and things like that. But yeah, it didn't, uh, they didn't feel like fleshed out humans who, who grew as the stories grew. Is it a 90s yeah. thing? Is it a 90s thing since like television like The Sopranos where the expectation is an overarching story? If you've got characters who have more of a personality and, and have sort of failing, that goes hand in hand with story arts. Story arts are a natural development of that. You do get that sense that people feel that they need to have that described sometimes as a backstory and that's built into... 5e isn't it to make sure that you've got a little bit of some an awareness of what's happened to your character before you started adventuring and this is just like one long um movement and progression towards the yeah. ultimate fulfillment think back right back to the 80s when we were playing some of our later games right at the end some games of RuneQuest that we played we did invent backstories for our characters and naturally story arc in some form or other started to kind of develop didn't they yeah so again the two the, the fact you would come up with the backstory as you say lends itself to a wider story rather than just a series of adventures you know because when you do a backstory then you've got enemies that games masters can exploit and build into a bigger story bigger picture let's uh, conclude this by saying if we were writing our blog, this is what we'd say the components for great based on the evidence of games that we've played over the last 12 years. So write it down. Write mm -hmm. this down because we're not going to write it down anyway, are we? So no. good sessions have engagement, a twist, impact, a purposeful structure, energy Ooh. and atmosphere. All you need to that's all we need to worry about those things put those things in your game and you'll have the perfect game because we said so um, yeah, we've, we've we solved it we've we solved know, it we know, we know what we're talking about no. we've solved it it is done that's it end of no more that's that's it. final word on it <laughs>
you don't need to buy any more of those advice, game master's advice books or anything like that. You just write those things down. And you'll be fine. You sort it yourself. Yeah. It's as easy as that. We should we should we should have done an advice podcast after all, shouldn't we? Yeah. We've been wasting our time all these years. It's just a pity that we didn't record it, isn't it? So it, it'll go down to yeah. unrecorded yeah. sequences. <laughs> but it's like all these great things, it exists but doesn't exist. Yeah. This podcast, it exists and doesn't exist at the same time. It's dead and alive at the same time. Let's come back and uh, do some New Year's resolutions. Okay. I'll get me caught. We're wandering towards the uh, door. At the end of a session, we want to go home. The, the bus is due, but we're continuing the chat. And this time, we've got some unfinished business from last time, Blyder. Mm-hmm. We uh, said that we would set some New Year's resolutions for 2024. And it seems a bit late. It seems mm-hmm. a bit late to be doing them now. It does seem a bit late now, doesn't it? I've got, it's got to the end of January and realised that any resolutions are never going to be kept anywhere. Yeah. Know? It's too late for all that now, isn't it? It's the 26th of January. 26th of January, this morning, somebody said, Happy New Year. 26th of January. Oh, come on. That's not on, is it? You can't do that on the 26th of January. You've you've missed the boat with the Happy New Year thing, haven't you? When when are you going to stop? If I've not, it's ridiculous, isn't it? If I've not seen someone since before Christmas and it's July, would they say Happy New Year? They They wouldn't, would they? No, but and, and I, I the think, what's the what's the cutoff point? I think there's a point, and it's fairly early on, where you've determined yourself whether it's happy or not. I mean, usually after the first few hours, for me, it's like yeah, yeah. No. For, first few hours, I'll days realise it's as it's as unhappy as all the others. Therefore, stop saying Happy New Year to me, but don't don't leave it to the 26th of January. Contributes to the general unsatisfactory nature of this podcast. The previous segment was a segment that was unrecorded, and this is a New Year's resolution when we're practically four weeks into the year. And And questioning the very idea of even mentioning the new year. It's come and gone, hasn't it? Jules Holland's Hogmanoo, or whatever it's called. Hogmanoo, Hogmanoo, Hootsanani, whatever it's called. It's come and gone, as it always does, recorded in July. Um, And that's that. That's that. (laughs) So let's look forward to the coming year and what I'm going to, I've got some specific questions and then I'll let you go. Right. First one. Right. What are your ambitions for the year in terms of campaigns? As you know, as has been mentioned many times, I'm running the Pirates of Drenax. So this year in around April, we'll end our second season. And I suppose in, in, in September of this year, We'll start the what I plan to be the fin- final of the three seasons of Pirates of Drenax. I kind of always promised myself it would be three years. Seems about right. I think going beyond that starts to get a bit silly. It, my ambition is to start the final season of Pirates of Drenax. And people shouldn't be overly concerned because it seems like a long period of time that, but we do have a break for summer, don't we? So it's a it's a winter. Yeah, we kind of yeah we finish. It's Saturday mornings, isn't it? And we finish around early April, because when you get to the good weather, people start doing things. And then when the when the winter starts coming in, we, we start again on a Saturday morning, usually about September, don't we? So every other Saturday morning, which works quite well. So have you, have, you got more, have you got more in mind outside of that? Short runs, 
rather than campaigns. I'd like to run. I'd like to run some DCC diner. I've got I've got some scenarios, like a little mini campaign of that. That would be that would be nice. Might do that. Try that with our Sunday group, but again later in the year, that'd be quite nice to do. Just six or seven sessions of that to sort of stretch it, stretch its legs, so to speak. You know, that would be good to do. I think so. Yeah, that. But then I don't know if I've got I don't know if I've got room for any more campaigns, really. If I'm honest. Yeah, that is the challenge. Yeah, I think to, as well, it, yeah. it is hard to put them in. Into uh, we're coming to the end of. Um, couple of campaigns that i've been running so coming to the end of um, rogue mistress which was finished this week which is the stormbringer campaign that i've been uh, running and then matthew's taking over uh, with uh, marvel heroic for a bit and the yeah. other uh, is the shadow of the sorcerer conan 2d20 campaign which has probably got another couple of sessions left into it and i'm thinking this year is the year that i'm going to turn my back on the big book campaigns because i've been running them for the last 12 years so you know when we reflected on the games that we've run i've run i've had one of those on the go more or less for the whole time yeah that's it yeah they're kind of time consuming and hard to hard to fit loads of them in and again, you are playing in some, aren't you, as well? You've got to remember you're playing in some campaigns yeah. as well, aren't you, as a player? So there is that. That's a factor. That, take, that takes up your time as well, not just running it like a megalomaniac. <laughs> but I guess the reason I'm coming away from big book campaigns is that I want to create campaigns. I don't think... Yeah. Uh, yeah. I've tried it a couple of times, and I think it's notable that the one that I did most recently even though that was two years ago, was the RuneQuest campaign, which kind of fizzled out. And that's what I worry about with having games that, uh, campaigns that I've created, that they lose a bit of their energy and momentum. And I think I set 10 sessions for that RuneQuest one, but because of scheduling and because of things that were going on, uh, it wasn't possible uh, to finish it. But I would like to have a regular game that, I was creating session by session, and it did. Ha- it didn't have any basis on something that was pre-written. It was entirely my own creation and the player's creation. Yeah, and it's nice that, isn't it? I mean, that the big book campaigns can be, you know, you do get the campaign fatigue as a games master, where you, you know, what's going to happen. You get a bit tired of it even before it's played. You know, the idea you you've almost played it as a games master before the players have played it, and then you've got to sit with it for a year or two and play it. But equally, I suppose, those big book campaigns do give you something to run, if you know what I mean. So like you were saying about things fizzling out because you lose energy or lose... But I suppose with a big book campaign, it is there for you, isn't it? You've got something to work with. Even if you're yeah. not... Even if you're flagging a bit, you've got something to work with. And the people, I, I agree the, with table, you, the people people around the table also have that mutual understanding that this is a a big book campaign and there's a predetermined ending or conclusion that's included in this book and the completest in you wants to see it through. So the scheduling issues are easier to overcome because everybody has a sense that we want to reach the end. We want to see, it's a bit like, you know, when you watch these Netflix series and you think it's a bit hard going this, but I want to see what happens um, at the second to the last one, 
Yeah, and I would say I would say that is why the Pirates of Drenax is so good because I don't think I genuinely don't think I, as a games master, could stomach a big book campaign that lasted for three years. Uh, I really don't think I could stomach it because I ran Storm King's Thunder and I ran Dragon Heist. They're the biggest things I've I've run. Remember for fifth edition, and I enjoyed them. But when I got to the end of Dragon Heist, I think I said to you. I think I said to you, I'll never want to play a fifth edition again because I've played so much of it now. But I think also what I meant was maybe I, I don't think I could run a pre-written adventure for so long again yeah. without getting a bit fed up of it. But the Pirates of Drenax has that brilliant thing where it, it is unpredictable. Every game, every session of it, I don't know what you're going to do. So as the is the beauty of there's enough information in there for me as a games master to go with stuff. There's enough from there for me to kind of hang ideas on and work with stuff. But equally, it's not set in stone. Well, I've I found this. Um, I've been doing a bit of clearing up and I found this. Do you recognise it? <laughs> I do recognise that, yeah. That's a wonderful the, piece of cartography, that is. Yeah, so this is a map that we created back in 1985 for the island of Raklash. And me, you and Eddie on a warm summer's day took a piece of hex paper produced by Games Workshop in 1982 and we drew upon it this land and we split it up between us because um, regular readers will know that I was broken back in 1985, 86 by a postal game. And... <laughs> Uh, this this is the origin, this is the um, foundational text, if you like, of that game, that, that uh, campaign that I ran. And I'm going to revisit it. I'm going to revisit <laughs> I'm going to take new people on adventures in this world that we, uh, we, we created it. And so um, see if you can recognise who has what area. On here, okay, all right. By by, there's just the names of it. All right, I'm going to change some of these names because we did these when we were. 16. Oh, that's cheating! Come on, I need to stick with the same names. Well, go on, give me the names. I'll tell you whether you should change them. Okay, <laughs> rubbish. But first off, uh, the Black Heath. Who was responsible for the Black Heath? Eddie. Eddie. Eddie was responsible. Well done. Well done. Uh, what about uh, Bakar, the Kingdom of Bakar? Me. Yeah. Um, the Kingdom of Bakar, this was a great thing that you invented, is that the king is artificially kept alive. <laughs> and he's like ancient and been there for a long time. And it's yeah. like an old corroded kingdom. Uh, fantastic. Next one, the Empire of the Ruby Sword. You. Yeah. <laughs> Derivative nonsense. Yeah, none of us, we've not changed, have we? None of us have changed. It's as easy to guess, isn't it? If we did, if we did it now, we'd come up with all that. Yeah. <laughs> I think we've changed. We've not. So Racklash is going to be revived in 2024. I'm going to run some uh, campaign with it, but some one-shots and introduce people to... Um, the world such as it is um, from this uh, this map. Now, 
I'm looking forward to doing it, but I also am fully aware that it broke me. And this could be the end, couldn't it? This could be. Could be the re- revisit the end of role playing. It's the yeah, that that's true, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it was the beginning of the end, really, wasn't it? Because yeah, this time next year, we could be facing <laughs> another deep freeze. We feel, <laughs> yeah, we, we could feel ourselves going into like a, yeah. a burnt out slumber, only to emerge twenty odd years later, and we've got what a couple of years then left. To, <laughs> to rebuy all the games and everything. Yeah. Play Pirates of Drunax again. Again, yeah. yeah. <laughs> in our in late 70s. But yeah, there we go. That's that's my plan for this year. Okay. Right. The other question was, what are your plans for one-shots? I've sort of said to myself this year that I plan to try and run a bit more Savage Worlds for one-shots. Or run a bit around the table, you know, because I've got a lot of Savage Worlds stuff, and I like Savage Worlds. And it was a bit of a drought last term. year, wasn't it? C- compared with the previous mm. couple of years, we had a bit of a Savage drought, didn't we, in uh, 23? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I've never, I, I have run it around the table once, twice, but not very often. And I, I've kind of said to myself, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to run it more. I've run it online a lot, and I've played it online a lot. I mean, we have... Wednesday groups, predominantly Savage Worlds, isn't it? And maybe that's why I don't run it for one-shots, because I feel I play it a lot anyway, and you'll come and try something new. But I also thought, over Christmas, I thought, I like like Savage Worlds. I like it a lot. And I've got, you know, I've got the Fantasy Companion, I've got Deadlands, I've got the Superpowers Companion, I've got got all the action cards, I've got all this stuff. You think, why don't I use all this? Because I like it. Why Why do I never bother? Why do I always look at savage worlds and then swerve onto something else when it comes to conventions so i suppose i'm going to you know i'm going to run some deadlands at morpcon in march and i'm going to run some going to run perhaps maybe black seven savage worlds at north star hopefully so yeah a little bit more savage worlds i want to run this year i think yeah i uh that'd be great i look forward to that I think this year is going to be the year of science fiction one-shots. Somebody pointed out to us that we don't seem to do a lot of uh, science fiction games other than Traveller. And I think this Mm. year is going to be the year of science fiction. It probably reflect that as well in some of the podcasts that we uh, put out over uh, 2024, because I think that's going to be um, where I focus. And as you mentioned, North Star is a convention that we're going to uh, attend in May, and that is science fiction focused. And uh, this year, two controversial changes. Controversial. Who cares? But controversial changes today. Eventually, in our small world, but it's not, won't be on the six o'clock news tonight, everyone. <laughs> in our world, is we've decided this year we're going to have a fallow year when it comes to UK Games Expo, so we don't intend mm. going to that. We made that decision. Yeah. Are you still supporting for that? Has four more kicked yeah, in yet? Yeah. No, hasn't. It hasn't really. No, no, because we we swapped it out with North Star, and we're going to try something a bit different. So that that feels okay. It's not like I don't feel like we're missing out really on gaming conventions. We're just going to a different gaming convention. Yeah. So that'll be okay. And, and the other thing is, is that Grogme in Manchester that we have a meeting normally in November, we're going to move it on a couple of months for various reasons that we uh, cover in the Discord. But we're going to do that in uh, January this time next year. Mm. This time next year, we'll be reflecting on another 
grog meat completing. Yeah. And I think as a word of warning, we should say to people when they attend grog meat in 2025, under no circumstances, wish either of us a happy new year. Because it'll be too late. Okay? Too late. Too late. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm looking forward to this year. I feel this year um, a sense. This this sounds uh, terrible because again it sounds like um, management speak. And forgive <laughs> us if this one has sounded a bit like management speak. But I feel like going a bit back to basics this time this year because I feel that we've done a bit of experimenting with nineties games and other games. But I really mm. want to go back to what we were all about when we first started doing the Grognard Files and having a look at some of those vintage games again and just seeing, looking under the bonnet of those um, during the podcast and just taking us back a bit um, to our origins, getting all wistful again. You normally have to step in. Yeah, I do know what you mean. I do know what you mean, actually. I, I had a similar kind of thing with Call of Cthulhu, didn't I, when I read Cult's Cthulhu and I've run some already this year, run a bit of Call of Cthulhu for you and Eddie. And again, Call of Cthulhu was a game I'd, I'd kind of, not, I've not run that for ages, but again, I kind of went back to basics and thought, oh, yeah, it's all right. This is good, this, isn't it? You know, I'm running a bit of that. And, I, and also, I, I feel this year, I, I sort of want to run things around certain small group of games that I understand and know. Yeah. Because you know, I think I, I've sometimes got a bit fed up of trying new things and then feeling that it's a bit inadequate because I've only played it once or I've only played it a couple of times and then I've moved on. It's quite nice to, like I said about Savage Worlds, it's quite nice to understand the game, like the old system mastery thing, isn't it, where you think I understand all this quite well and inside out and that makes it much more fun to run because you know it, you know. It's like it feels kind of natural. Whereas sometimes with a game, you're thinking half the job is, oh, I've only run this a couple of times and I want to try it out, but, oof, you know, <laughs> don't know what I'm doing. Whereas with some games, you think, well, I do know what I'm doing. Call of Cthulhu 7th edition, I know what I'm doing. And when I ran it for you and Eddie, it felt felt good, didn't it? Because we all knew it and it was it's very easy to just slot into it, like a comfy old yeah. pair of slippers, isn't it? You're all right, yeah. I'm, I'm back, in the, back in these, everything's fine. So I kind of want to do that a bit more, you know, just limit my, not limit the number of games I run, but maybe just limit those games to a few systems that I know quite well and yes. sort of explore them a bit more, maybe. Back to basics, nostalgia and a smattering of science fiction, I think, this year. I'm looking forward mm. to it. I feel energised about gaming again. I feel that it will be uh, impactful and have a purposeful structure where we engage with people with some atmosphere. I, I tell you, God, you're writing a mission statement for the podcast next. Stop it. See you later. <laughs> See ya. There isn't another bit. Thank you again to John Four for appearing on the Grog Pod. Please sign up to his newsletter and get five room dungeons for free and a great set of tips landing in your inbox at regular intervals. 
Another bit of unfinished business is my annual roundup of podcast recommendations. And it is hard to keep up. Recently, Ben Riggs, the RPG historian and former guest on the Grog Pod, suggested that the golden age of RPGs was coming to an end. I think his clickbait declaration is a bit premature and seems solely based on the machinations of the Wizards of the Coast business model. I mean, I'm still getting over SPI being bought out by TSR, so I can't really judge these things when it comes to gaming. However, I do think that we've entered a different era of podcasting. I'm not saying that it's on the wane, far from it, but it does seem to be moving away from the cottage industry that it once was, to a more monetized model, which is dominated by high-profile pods, which inevitably squeeze attention away from smaller players with different voices. I'm not necessarily talking about niche topics like gaming. It's more like news programming that you might have previously picked up on the radio. They have become the staple of the centrist dad's listening habits. I may be wrong, but I feel like I've heard a few too many adverts for NordVPN and BetterHelp. But I still don't quite know what they're offering. The podcast players push the popular, drowning out some of the others, and the RSS technology that it's based on is so ropey that it's hard to get your feed prominent and social media platforms have become more and more diffuse. So I think it's really important for all of us that if we like something, pass it on. If we really like it, give it a review. I've been listening to more audiobooks this year, and they don't really count, and neither do the radio programmes that I catch up from the weekend during my daily commute. However, there have been a few podcasts that have caught my attention this year that I've added to my normal roll call that you might be interested in. I've only just got into The Rest is History. I find Dominic Sandbrook a bit irritating. It's funny how you can find all kinds of irrational responses and reasons not to listen to particular podcasts. It's that intimacy. You have to really decide whether you're going to let a a voice into your life. But I've started to accommodate uh, Dominic Sandbrook a bit more and I found the podcast an excellent addition to my subscribed list. If you haven't listened yet, I recommend Fear City, New York in 1970s, and for us gamers, Viking Sorcery, which features Neil Price, who was an advisor on the film The Northman. It's essential listening. There have been a few new additions to The Rest Is stable, including The Rest Is Entertainment, which I've enjoyed for the first few weeks it's been going. It'll be interesting to see how it develops. With Richard Osman and Marinda Hyde, who manages to speak posh quicker than anyone else on earth. Let's hope that they don't do a The Rest Is tabletop role-playing or we're all buggered. If you're seeking some RPG inspiration, I recommend Intrigue, The Immortals, which was about Silicon Valley tech bros who were seeking longevity through various incredible methods. Honestly, if you can't rustle up a scenario or an NPC after listening to it, you're not trying hard enough. I created an NPC for Stormbringer. 
who was conjoined to a younger man to give him more life. It's packed with crazy concepts that you'll want to adapt and adopt into your games. That's the Immortals. Talking of tech bros, I recommend Peter Kafka's Land of the Giants, which was all about Twitter's origin story and how the seeds of self-destruction were laid right from the very start. For an excellent history of the entire internet, I recommend ACM, Home of the Weird Left, hosted by Jem Gilbert and Keir Milburn of this parish and Nadia Idol, who can't quite understand why they like RPGs so much. They do a really good summary of the milestones of its development through the prism of politics and everyday life. Stephen Brotherston, who has also been on the Grog Pod, has just finished the first season of Scarred for Life podcast to accompany his brilliant book. Actual celebs come on and discuss their Scarred for Life memories, including Ian Livingstone, who has an unusual reading of the Scarred for Life brief. Gaming podcast recommendations? Well, there haven't been many to add to my usual list. Uh, A couple of episodes ago, I mentioned Mason and Fricker's EldritchStories.com, weird fiction interspersed with chat. It's really getting into its stride, and I do hope that the fiction will be published in the future in one form or another. If you like to walk on the weird side, you should also check out Bud and Griff's gaming creep show from Bud's RPG Reviews who teams up with one of the founders of the Grog Squad, Doc RPG Griff. They talk about the Fortean with RPGs on the side with a sense of humour. I've also enjoyed Between Two Carns an OSR review show with engaging and informal insightful discussion. The hosts are knowledgeable but wear it lightly so it feels comfortable and light. That's between two cans. As for the Grog Pod, well, we've got plans to keep us going for at least another 12 months, and we're still enjoying it. We're incredibly encouraged by the people who support it by listening, sharing, and of course, those who throw a tip in the Patreon beret. The contributions that the Grog Squad make ensure that we're encouraged to continue thick and thin, cover the costs, And let's face it, it's more rewarding than having another ad for Squarespace. I'll give some individual shout-outs next time. And next time, we have a very, very special gaming guest. Until then, adios, amigos.